right, welcome to another conversation with Lamp episode. I'm your host, James Lampion, and I got a very special guest that I'm humbled to introduce, Dr. Derek Robinson. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me, brother. I really appreciate this. Before we, I, I really just appreciate you taking the time to do this because you're one of the few people that I grew up respecting in Suitland High School. That's our old high school. And it's just an honor to sit here and talk to you and see how much you've grown and how much you've developed since our Suitland days. Um, it's an honor to have that. This is so real for me, being able to have a former student that I had in ninth grade who is, is grown and became his own man, is a strong father, you know, and producing in the way that I saw it happen. So to have me here, man, is so important. This is probably one of those highlight moments of my life, for real. I'm humbled to hear that. I wanted to just start about, um, we, we, man, you actually, we was talking before I came on, and we was just talking about education. I wanted to ask you, when you were coming up, did you did you aspire to be a teacher? I didn't. I didn't, not at all. What happened was I had one black male teacher, period, from K to 12. He was my 10th grade English teacher named Mr. McGuire. And I was an okay student. I got by by just listening to my teachers and, and you know, just trying to be intuitive about what was going on in the classroom. But I never really read anything. Um, I got, I started getting turned off to school in about the fourth grade, Miss Hoffman's class. You know, it, black males can always remember that point where they started getting turned off to school. And by the time I got to the 10th grade, I was just a goofy little kid who liked making jokes and, and, and liked cracking and laughing and all that kind of stuff. And, I found myself starting to get in trouble with Mr. McGuire's class because he didn't play. But what he also did is he made us read. And I'm so thankful for that because the first book I ever completed was Native Son. And to me, that book became the story of the black man. Um, fast forward, I go off to college and I have a debate class. And the teacher there, this white woman, made us do community service as part of our grade. So I went to John Hope Holmes, which is a project right by Morehouse College and Clarkland University. Um, and we went to their community center and was volunteering and started working with some young, young kids in math. And, and more than just teaching math occurred, I like really bonded with these students and so much so that I met their parents. And one day, one of the students came on campus and found me because I was doing my work study in the um, university center where everybody go to play pool and watch the uh, BET and stuff like that. Um, he came and found me and we spent the whole day together, you know, and I, and I had that idea like, wow, I really may think about teaching him. And about that time too, uh, Mr. McGuire passed away. Wow. So I went to talk to my department chair because I was all set I was going to do law school, because I was a political science major, I was going to law school. I even applied and got accepted to Georgia State University's um, law program, which was a law program and a business school. So you get a, like a joint JD MBA um, program. And I was, I, was, I was prepared to do that. That was going to be it for me. That was going to be life. Um, but I started getting really enthused about the idea of teaching. 
Um, and then I started meeting professors because they allowed me to take some education courses at, at Spelman and Clark. Um, and it felt like second nature. It felt like it was just good to do. It would, you know, so when I finished up, um, I had an interview with PG County, the only people I interviewed with. And um, luckily, uh, Robert Gaskins hired me on the spot. And it happened so quick, I thought it was a scam. <laughs> I really like I called him like alright I'm employed right <laughs> and that summer that I graduated I came up to PG I actually was living with my aunt at the time you know in Reston, Virginia and I called him when I got there like alright I'm here I'm in the DC area everything's still cool right <laughs> you know and I know he thought it was weird Every move I made, I called him. I think I called him like weekly. Just, <laughs> you know. After that, man, when I got to Suitland High School, because Suitland wasn't the first school to chose, or it wasn't the first school I interviewed with. I actually oh. with Duval High School. But oh, that, wow. Yeah, he thought I was too young. Ah. I heard later, he thought that I was too young. Um, so he went with somebody else. And then somewhere along the line, Dr. Marshall got wind that I was out there, and he asked for me to come there. Uh, in fact, Mr. Gaskins actually told me that Dr. Marshall wanted me um, to come down there and talk to him. And I went down there. Um, they brought me to Merrill's tomorrow program. Miss um, Jones like, interviewed me on the spot, but actually went into character. She started acting like an unruly kid in the interview. <laughs> <laughs> and it was... It was the greatest interview ever because I handled it. And she was like, oh, man, if you can do that, I know you can do this job. And, and it was it was not only just a, a job, it was therapeutic at the same time. It was. Um, it, it was just a pleasure, man. Like, I just remember the, the talks. And like I mentioned, I was, we, we talked earlier. I just remember you would come to work. And you had on your shirt and your tie, man. Was there like a was there a reason you did that? Like you would always come to work with a shirt and tie. Was there a reason for that? I think part of it was, of course, the training in Morehouse. You know about being professional, presenting a professional look. But it was also, I knew that the students that I taught had to see an adult that could be formal and still be cool. Yeah, you know that. Just because you see the, the suit and tie and you see the glasses, you know, that you don't think that he don't relate and understand. So I, I've grown up in the D.C. area all my life. Um, I remember Oxford Knoll before it was Oxford After It's something else now. I don't even think it existed. <laughs> but I had been coming out that way all my life. I had a girlfriend who lived up by Lando, uh, by Lamb, what was it? Landover Mall. Um, yeah. In the woods was the apartments. It's probably something else now. I remember coming over to Maryland Gardens back in the days, or hanging around with my cousin and other friends and stuff like that. So I knew the area because the area was me, you know. And I also knew that kids grow up seeing angry adults. Yeah, right? just because they're working, you know, I ain't got time to smile and working and stuff like that. And I knew that students had to see at least a happy adult sometime, you know. So I, I would dress up. I also wanted them to see that I can also dress down. Yeah. We talked about like on Fridays, 
I wear my college t-shirt and my jeans and some sneakers and stuff like that. I was not a big fashion dude. Like, I'm not wearing Jordans and stuff like that. But you could see that you could be educated and relatable. Yeah. I never really lost my D.C. kind of accent. But I can't switch it up, you know. <laughs> but I find when I'm talking with somebody from back in the way and we get there and it start it come out a little more. But I just wanted students that I taught to feel like, you know, I could be in. Yeah. I can I can I I'm a jump in. I can't tell you how how important that was because at the time when, when I had your class, I was fourteen, I was a freshman, and you were in your second year your second year teaching. Mm-hmm. So you were like the first polished, educated black man that I came across. Because I'm from, you know, I'm from Capitol Heights. Now, it's not, the, you know, Capitol Heights is a blue collar city. Most of the people who do go to college, they end up leaving. Yeah. So my, like, I had an uncle, my uncle graduated from college, but that was, you know, that was much later. And then he was, you know, I didn't see him in a professional sense. Like he, you know, he was my, he was my uncle. Yeah. But when he, you know, but he went away, he went, he went to, he actually went to American University. So he went, you know, he went and he got a job. I, I think he, he's an ironic, he was a teacher too, but I didn't, I didn't get to see him in the classroom. So you was like, it was just big for me as a young black man to see another young black man who was polished and professional, well-dressed and just knew how to relate to us. It was That was very important. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> but that, that was important for me, man. And I really can't, you know, I can't express that enough. And I needed it from y'all. I needed that respect. Like, the coolest thing was that I came to school every day to impress y'all. Wow. I, I wanted y'all to, I wanted to make sure that I couldn't be short own stuff, you know, so that, that kept me excited, it kept me to plan, it kept me to think, you know, and stuff like that, but I came to impress y'all, just to kind of, all right, let me hit it with this and see, you know, what they're thinking at, and stuff like that, and let me show them that, you know, this information, because I'm teaching government. Yeah. I'm a double agent. I'm teaching about the system that got me here to make sure y'all don't graduate. You know, oh, you got back up with that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, people, you know, you feel a lot of people say that education system is broken. And the truth is, no, it's not. Education system is doing exactly what it intended to do. It intended for some people to get a high quality education, it intended for some people to not. Think about it. We set up higher education college so that some people with money can get it easy. Those people without money, you're going to get it, but you will also start your life off in extreme debt. Wow. You're still climbing to get out. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? It is designed for you not to succeed. And I'm here trying to circumvent the system I'm trying to fight against the system. So, you know, I got to convince y'all, I'm not like your last teacher. I understand. You know, and I'm trying to 
fight this thing just like you are, and I'm also trying to protect you from it, you know, by trying to give you this information in a real way, because I can't come in there and teach you that all these old white men are good people. Yeah. So you're going to realize that I'm on some BS and stuff like that and call it, because it ain't going to sit right in your nature. You know, it's just the vibe ain't going to be right. And once you, and one thing I love about teaching black students is when they feel you, they when they don't feel you, it's a wrap. Yeah. <laughs> if that vibe ain't right, you know, and that's, I guess that's what we get growing up in quote unquote the streets. We learn to read people fast. Yeah. I don't read people that stare down far more dangerous people than the people I interact with now. <laughs> me at all, you know. I've been on them curves and seen some dangerous people. <laughs> you know, I told you, Oxford knows. I I remember seeing rape weapons out there. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. Oxford knows. I don't even know what that. I think they tore that shit down. I don't know where it's at. Yeah, long gone now. I don't even know what it is, man. That might be a gas station or something. <laughs> so how long? How long did you actually teach? And in high school, oh man! So I had fifteen total years. Um, I taught nine years at Suitland. So from ninety three to two thousand two, I taught at Suitland. Um, and one of those years, I actually took a year off. Um, family situation: I went to try and go get custody of my my kids. Um, failed at that, you know, and then moved back once they had left. Um, Atlanta, you know, just dealing with, you know, my ex-wife um, was able, Miss Cole was able to get me back there standing and not lose my time. Um, oh, wow. And at that same time, I was also in business school. So I thought I was going to go into the world of business. You know, I did for a year. I was bored to death. You know, came out of that, went back into teaching, but this time I went to a charter school in D.C., um, I was there for two years. Um, I, by that time, I was living in Howard County, in, okay. on the Howard County side. Um, so, you know how D.C. traffic is. <laughs> so, particularly coming down, you know, the park, the Beltway Parkway, stuff like that. So, I was there in the charter school for two years, and I went to Howard County Schools uh, for one year. Um, but because, only was only at one year because at that time, we were already planning to move to uh, Charlotte, North Carolina. Okay. So by the time that year was up, we had already, I'd already had a job in Charlotte. Um, I went to a school that's kind of like Cleveland High School. Uh, it was West Charlotte High School. Um, it it wasn't nearly as tough, you know, but they had their challenges and things like that. But it was a good work to do. The principal, I really liked him. So I interviewed with him in like five minutes. I'm like, wherever you are, I want to be. Okay. Put that job in five minutes. You know, I wanted to back up real quick, because um, you said you worked in a in a charter school. That's interesting. What's the difference between the charter school and the public school? Not a thing. Um, there's nothing that you do at a charter school that can't be done at a public school, outside of hiring and promotion. Like they could go hire somebody off the street and make them the system principal. They could take a dance teacher who taught dance for one year and doesn't have a principal license and make them an assistant principal. But we, like particularly a DC charter, 
you go by the same standards and rules as the public school. In fact, in DC charter, at least at that time, if a kid expelled from like Baloo or Eastern or something you know, or Anacostia or whatever, they actually had access to the charter school. Automatic. Wow. Um, but charter, not all charters are the same. So you, when you do research on charter schools, what you'll find out, like some exclusive white charters are really just, they want to be private schools, but they can't charter. Oh. So how do they stay charter and all white? They locate themselves in a white neighborhood or white area. And then they do this. They don't offer lunch or bus transportation. Oh, wow. So that automatically cuts out anybody who expects, you know, to not provide lunch or expects a bus to be picked up. So it, it automatically segregates. Wow. Black charter schools, because they built on something different, they got a different, you know, they got a more pure motive and, and purpose. They provide the lunch because they know not all their families going to be bringing by Chick-fil-A, you know, <laughs> and they provide the transportation. Well, some of the biggest expenses of a school after salaries are transportation and food services. Hmm. So sometimes the black charter schools, and this reason why you see like some of them closed you know, really fast or don't last long, or they got to get sponsored by some some wealthy money. They chuck their clothes because they can't afford to maintain operations. So what's the ratio, the teacher to student? It's still about the same. My classes were no more um, smaller at, at charter school I was at than they were at, um, at student. So oh. I, I could have a class of like 25, 30, you know, Realistic, I, I can have a class of like 18 or 19, depending on what class I taught. When I taught my economics class, yeah, it was an elective. So, you know, not everybody would have to take that. The one thing I can say was good about that charter school is they had some money and they spent Oh. So we had like smart boards before people knew what smart boards were. We had laptop carts where all the kids had a laptop before you knew what that was. But we also ran into the same dilemma. You know, 25, 30 years ago, we just knew that if we gave every kid a computer, they'd learn. You know, and what we found out was, if you give every kid a computer, it still don't mean anything. You still got to teach. You still got to do your job. You know, and, and a lot of instructors use, you know, computer technology as a crutch rather than as an assistant to what you're doing. And that's a... Wow. So, if you ideally, what would you say a good student to teacher ratio would be, being to do being in the classroom? They actually say there's actually some research to say that the sweet spot is anywhere from about 22 to 26. Oh, I thought it would have been a little lower. Mm -mm. What they say is when it gets lower, um, it's actually kind of negative returns because it may kind of entice the teacher to do less work. Um, because almost like I guess I don't. It's almost like if if you had a comedian coming to perform, and only like 
half the people show up to the to the comedy club. He may be enticed not to give his full act. Oh, okay. You okay. know, so it may lead to some 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 bit of underperformance because there ain't nobody really here. So the crowd of room effect, basically. Yes. Yeah. And of course, for too large of a class, you kind of know why they you can't monitor everything and the way we have schools now, we're more concerned about containing black bodies than we are about educating black minds. Wow, say that again. <laughs> so we're more concerned about more concerned about containing black bodies than we are about educating black minds. Can you mind breaking that down? All right, cool. I'm gonna break it really down. <laughs> I tell people, when you talk about educators, you'll hear a lot of people talk about classroom management, right? Um, and it's just how you prevent kids from acting crazy. But we take a style that actually stems from slavery. So the first classroom management was slavery. We actually had these, these, these bodies in one space and we had to control them. So we had to put them in rows and columns, you know, and you think about how the fields were. They were in rows and columns and they were chained up. We were trying to control their movement and still make them work. You know, and we didn't encourage any thought and stuff like that. Well, that was that had been the pattern of containing black bodies. Well, you move from that to then the factory system, you know. So now we're talking about, you know, the, the assembly line of working, the division of labor, and Taylorism, and all this kind of stuff. Well, now. We're just trying to give you busy work, not thoughtful work. So you're just a cog in the machine. Like imagine you're working in the semi line of a car factory and all you do is put on the tires every day. Mm-hmm. At the while, they don't need to think. And what, what thought goes into putting on a tire every 33 seconds as that car rolls down the semi line? You know, so your mind is really part of the machine, not using it. But we try to control people like that. You think about working at a factory 100 some years ago, it was you, the bell rang, you start working. The bell rang again, you start working, you take a break. The bell rang again, you start working. The bell rang again, you start working, take a lunch break. And then you do that all day long. Well, what's the difference between that and your class periods at school? Bell ring, you work in a classroom. Bell don't ring, the bell ring again, you get up, go to your next class. Bell ring again, you start working. Bell, you know, it's the same. You, know, you take a lunch break. You know, so that's what we concerned about controlling bodies. But it gets even deeper than that because the next level of classroom management is the law enforcement. If we see y'all congregating, then we call it loitering. You know, so if we see y'all just hanging around, we're gonna have to break that up. If we see you doing stuff that's outside of just moving in lines. Like the penal system, schools can operate like prisons sometimes. How many times have we got y'all out and we take y'all out of class and we make y'all walk in row in a, in a, in a line? That's, that's what prisons do. <laughs> I've actually seen an elementary school where the kids had to walk in a line and they, one, they, they would have one hand behind them holding the other kid's hand, another hand in front of them holding the kid in front of them's hand. And he's got this long chain walking down. I mean, their hands are essentially our chains. What's the difference between that and what we see in prisons? You know what's funny? I'm listening to you talk, right? 
Mm-hmm. So Jaden Smith was doing an interview, Will Smith son. Yes. He said this exact same thing, and people thought he was crazy. Right. But I guess when when somebody of your background says it, it makes sense. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's probably heard that talk over and over again because if you think about his mom and dad, you know, they've been socially conscious for a while, even to the point where it's cost them stuff. So he's probably been in an environment where he's grown up listening to people think outside the box or really analyze the situation that you're in and stuff like that. But what he doesn't have, I'm guessing, or I don't have to guess, I'm just by life experience, I don't know. But what he doesn't have is the actual, I've been there and I've seen it. I I think also it continues on. Like, I I remember we were, because one thing you'll find really big at, at a lot of urban schools is this emphasis on dress code. Yeah. Concerned about what you wear. You know, but if you go to a high performing school, look at what the teachers dress in. Look at what the kids wear. All of them things will get you suspended at a black school, at an urban school. And it, it gets to the point where we're punishing, particularly black girls. I had a teacher tell me tell this, and it, it almost startled me to the point where like, do I play a part in this stuff? And she was telling us that we are literally punishing black girls for a condition they can't control. Their bodies. Yeah. So yeah, they may be a little more shapely than that little skinny little white girl. That little white girl is wearing them volleyball shorts in school. Yeah. And a hoodie with the hood on. All the things you can never do at a black school. So how do you how do you how do you feel about a dress code? I hate them. And it's it's weird to say that, right? But I actually have grown to learn and respect youth culture, black culture. Um, I don't think we're a one-shot deal, but when I see dress codes, even like you go now to malls, they got a dress code. Mm-hmm. Clubs now, you see a long list of what you can't wear. And if you take a look at that list, what they have described is a black man. Yeah. Like you can't wear polo. Like Ralph Lauren is not allowed, you know, into the club. Particularly the striped shirt. It can't be red. It can't be blue. You know, it can't be a striped shirt. It can't be too long. It can't be too short. You know, your pants can't do with so much. You can't have tents. If you have shorts, they can't. They can't cover the knee. Huh. Well, we can tell you. You might as well say no black men allowed. <laughs> so let me. Okay. So this is how I feel about dress codes. I'm. I was talking to my wife about it. And I'm actually okay with dress codes. And I'm going to tell you why I'm okay with it. Right. So when when I went to Suitland, we were always, it was always one big fashion show. What you have on, what shoes you got on, what clothes you got on. And I'll be, I'll be perfectly honest. When I had a job, that was my motive. Believe it or not, that was my motivation for working. To buy the newest clothes and the newest shoes. And now, if I had went to a school with a dress code, I wouldn't have been so much focused on what I'm wearing 
and people wouldn't have, I, people wouldn't have been focused on what I'm wearing. I wouldn't have been focused on what they wearing. We would have right. just been in an environment where we just learning and focused on the education. So I, I do kind of agree with dress code. Right. And, and you know what? From from, your, from that perspective, I totally understand and I support that. Okay. Here's where I think where I come in on the other side of that is this. As your teacher, I have no right or concern about how you choose to be unique. Okay. You to be flashy or fly or whatever. I'm not I'm not a solution to materialism. I care about your learning and growing and maturing as an adult. And so much so that if I can do that job well, you will outgrow materialism. And and also, we can get us in trouble. For example, this is an example that happened I had to deal with. I had a teacher who commented on a girl's clothes and told her to put on her jacket because of what she was wearing. And she did. She did exactly what he said to do. She sat down, made it through the entire class. It was like 30 seconds before the bell rang. She was walking out the door, and as she walked out the door, she took the coat off. He followed her, getting on her the entire time, walking down the crowded hall. He followed her out of the building he taught at to another building, because this school had like nine separate buildings. It was an open campus. He followed her to another classroom, yelling at her, telling her she better put the coat back on and things like that. And it was in the summertime. Well, not summertime, but like late spring in Charlotte feel like somewhere Wales. Right. That's when you have gone beyond your job to enforce something that's petty. Yeah. Yeah. That's and that's the problem when we get it. Like if when we do a dress code, that's what we do. Now we talk about suspending you because of your clothes. And also the history of dress code is a whole lot different than we think. Most of us think that the history of dress codes began with prep schools and stuff like that, and boarding schools with rich white folks. No. The dress code in schools began out of the desire to strip the culture of Native Americans. It was called Americanizing. Mm. So it began in racism. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> racism, because I guarantee you this. You live in Laurel now, or where you live at? I'm in Alexandria now. I was in, okay. Go to Fairfax High School. Okay. Go to Langley High School. Go to Jefferson High School and tell me what they wear. Then go to West Potomac High School, where I went to school, and tell me what they wear. Go to Suitland, see what they wear. Then go to Centennial High School in Howard County and see what those people wear. And we ain't tripping. You know, <laughs> the best way to get through materialism is to have things. The best way to conquer materialism is to have things. Because once you have it, you realize it wasn't all that. But you, but that's the thing. At that age, you can't yeah. get it at that age, though. Right, right. And that, and, and that goes to a deeper motive that schools can't solve directly. Um, the deeper motive is validation. Yeah. We want to be validated 
as a people, as a culture, as an individual. I want you to see me, recognize me, and respect what you see. You know, I'm, I'm a huge fan of hip hop, of course. And, and one of my favorite rappers, probably over the last decade or so, has been this rapper named Skyzoo. Because his stuff is so introspective and deep that it's, it has replay value. But he has a song about validation. And he based it on the stick-up tape from Minister Society. Now, mm-hmm. remember how Minister Society opens up. It opens up with what people think is a robbery and murder. Because remember, they in the little the um, Korean uh, store, convenience store, and stuff like that, and they kill the guy, and then go get the, the money out um, the cash register and get the tape. The tape later when Chauncey turns them in, stuff like that. Um, but if, if you listen to the, the script, he actually says something unique. How is it every time I come in this motherfucker, you always got something to say? And then he talked about the kids, he talked about the kids' mother and stuff like that. And then he shoots him. And now you have one motive. I'm being disrespected again. I'm not being validated for who I am again. Then another motive takes place because after I shoot him and I'm holding the gun to the lady's head, like take me to where the videotape is. And then old dog turns a cane, get the stuff out of the cash register, get the money out of the cash register now. You know, so now you think it's a robbery. But it all came down from the lack of validation. So in a song that um, Skyzoo has, the hook goes, I got to say this right. (laughs) All it takes to come to life is a stage to live it. Shit can happen overnight if you awake to get it. Like aiming before you draw or what it takes to hit it. Now, just pause it. Aiming before you draw means you've got focus and, and purpose. Like, think about it. If you aim and you know the target before you draw the gun. And then yeah. aiming before you draw and what it takes to hit it. So focus and determination. Because it takes determination to, to actually be steady enough to hit the target. So all of that, you can make it if you have focus and determination. So like aiming before you draw or what it takes to hit it. Or like Kane and Old Dog, the stick-up tape from Mintz. I'm going to be validated one way or the other. I'll by doing it the right way. Or I can flip this thing and be validated the wrong way. Yeah. I think, you know, it was just, I'm thinking about it now, like, I just remember, like, I'm just thinking about where I was, and I just remember, like, I would get my check, and and it's funny because me and my wife we were just talking about this because um, we talking about Nia getting a bank account and stuff. So she mm-hmm. was telling me how she had her first bank account, and I was like, well, I don't remember having a bank account. She's like, What do you mean you have a bank account? What do you, what do you mean? And I was like, Well, when I, I when I worked at Safeway, mm-hmm. they cashed my check for me. She was like, for real? I was like, yeah. And I was like, so what I would do, I would get my check and I would spend it. Like, I didn't spend it on, you know, I didn't spend it on anything good. All I, I mean, well, you know, nothing meaningful. I would always buy new shoes, new clothes, but I didn't really, I didn't really have anyone telling me, you know, you don't need to spend all your money on that. You know, you could save a little. Bit. 
so I was just caught up in trying to, like, I was trying to, I wanted validation. Like, I wanted to be one of the best drafts. I wanted to be cool. Mm-hmm. So that's why I feel like, man, if 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 you could take one thing away, you know, one last thing, because it's, it's just, it's just for us. Like, we love, like, our people just love to be fashionable. And then when you take that away, and you just have to strip that and just focus on education. Everybody look the same. We all look alike. So you don't need to think about that shirt he got on, the jeans he got on. It, it makes a huge difference. I think it does. It does. And, and, and on that perspective, it does. Totally. Because if we focus on what we're supposed to be doing, it's really about what you then believe in, right? Um, and, and in that sense, financial literacy is important. To teach because that's the real issue, right? Is when we get money, what do we do with it? You know, and, and knowing what to do with it, but then also that means having faith in the system to work for you. And we have to acknowledge that we have been screwed over by the system so much that it's hard to have faith in. Yeah. So when I get money, I'm gonna live right now because one, I can't guarantee you I'm gonna make it to 65. Yeah. And particularly if the average lifespan now for black men is like 71, 72. You know, I make it to 65 and retire. I got six years left. <laughs> you know? yeah. Six, seven years left. I mean, and, and I hate to sound morbid like that, but because I know we don't think like that. Like we say, well, I don't plan on making it in life. But you'll hear that come out in some of the things we say. Yeah. Almost like a live now kind of thing that we've got to kind of grow beyond, but live now satisfies, I'm going to have fun this moment, I'm going to enjoy this moment, I'm going to do this, I'm not planning for the future because it's not guaranteed, or whatever, and we got so many ghetto cliches about tomorrow's, tomorrow's never promised, and all this kind of stuff, I mean, you know, we got a two, there's a Tupac verse that talks about all this, I'm sure, um, but that also means having faith in the education system and believing it's going to really work for you. Yeah. If I don't believe that the educational system is going to work for me, and I got to come here every day for 180 days a year, for 12 straight years, and sometimes 13, then why am I coming here for? If I don't believe it's going to work, well, I'm coming here because that's where I get, they say I got to be. I'm coming here because the girls are here. And I'm coming here. So if I'm doing all that, it's a social place, and the girls are here, and I got to get, you know, I got to be seen and heard and whatever. And I'm going to look fly to do it. So you're right in the sense that they may need to be addressed code in some sense, but there also needs to be, someone has to address the fact that we still don't totally buy into the fact that education is really going to work for us. Yeah. I don't, because they don't, so when we're in school, they don't have any, um, when I was coming up, I don't remember any, like classes that prepare you for life. Everything was, everything, you know, prepared you for books, you know, you read stories about history and that's good. But you don't, you don't gain any common knowledge. Like you mentioned earlier, you, you taught an economics class. But most of us coming up, it would be a good time to learn about credit and how to manage finances when you, you know, when you're a teenager, when you don't have the, the stress, the life and bills 
So you got a little more extra money to do it with. But you don't learn any of that stuff. And, and you right. and unfortunately, like me, I learned I learned my financial lessons by failing. You go to credit, you go to college and they offer you a credit card. <laughs> you, you don't know no better. You thinking like, okay, all I know is just five hundred dollars that I got to spend. But nobody telling you about interest rates, nobody telling you, okay, you know, credit utilization, nothing. So you just learn it. You just want to fly. You learning. You just learn it through failure, and it's a, just a constant cycle of us learning through failure. I, I went through the same thing. I, in fact, it took me to age twenty-seven to pay off a five hundred dollar credit card I had at seventeen. Damn. Because of the interest, me delaying it, not knowing what to do, they would send me bills that said I owed them nothing. Mm. And that, yeah, why are they saying you don't own nothing? This interest still gonna add on. So I'm just, hey man, you send me a bill to say amount due zero point zero zero. I'm rip red. <laughs> <laughs> you know. And what happened is it caught me. Of course, I paid it off, but it had already been cut off. Oh. So uh, now my credit, you know, credit bad and all this kind of stuff. Off of them being predatorial towards a 17-year-old who didn't know better. Mm-hmm. Right. So here's the deal. What is the difference? Some communities decide that they're going to educate their children on financial literacy in the home and in the community. They have mentors in the home and in the community that will teach them the things that we don't get taught. Like everybody has these mentors and they don't tell us about them. You know, like if a kid want to be a lawyer or want to be an accountant and the accountant lives across the street in that house, well, yeah, we're going to march on over there. Talk to them, learn about where to go, the right colleges to choose. Do this, do that. Don't do this, don't fall in this trap. We, in our communities, are hoping that the schools will help us with that. And what the schools are saying now, nah, we're going to give you four years of English literature. <laughs> You're going to read Beowulf. You know, <laughs> Greek mythology. Yeah. And what that got to do with anything, and once again, our kids are smart enough to know when this thing don't vibe right with my spirit, it's bull. Yeah. So I, I can tell you I read Beowulf. I can't tell you why I read it. That, that you you saw a black face in this classroom or black faces in an entire classroom. And the best thing came out your mind was, yeah, let me have that big bail. When I read Native Son, Mr. McGuire was purposely choosing that particular piece to teach us about ourselves and our struggle and how to be a black man in America, you are one accident or tragedy away from doing it all. Like the, the, the main character in Native Son, Bigger Thomas, he had to exert energy to not be in trouble. You know, like, and it, when, I, when I read about it, it, it resonated with me because I think I spent my entire childhood trying to avoid going into yeah, yep. If I could take that energy and put it towards something else, how great could I have been? 
I spend my energy trying not to get killed, trying not to go to jail. Same here. <laughs> I, I tell people all the time, like, um, I was I was on the subway one day and I was thinking about it. And we and we talk about uh product in your environment. Mm-hmm. And I made a post one time on Facebook and I just was talking about how I was in the I was in a position where I never got the dream. Mm-hmm. Like my my mind was just in the present, staying out of trouble, you know, not not falling victim to bad influences, things like that. Like I didn't Man, I didn't recognize the world was bigger than Capitol Heights until I was 20, 21 when I met my wife. And that's when I realized that, man, it's, it's more out here than PG County. You got people who doctors, lawyers. But, you you know, when you're in, you, you know, when you're in the blue-collar cities, you just see people who go to 9 to 5. And, and that's good, you know. You gotta, you know, that's respectable, but it's more to life than that. The people who really making things move, they're not working. <laughs> they're not working at these places where you stressed and all your, it takes all your time. You don't have time for your kids. Like even now, I'm I'm in this area. I'm in Virginia, and I'm just noticing like how active parents are and PTAs and with the kids and I think that was a big problem for us like I don't I don't think our parents engaged with the school as much as they should have that is 100% right um, and the thing is now that you know that I know that that changes how you engage with your daughter yeah you move her forward and you can't be necessarily upset with our parents because they gave us what they knew mm-hmm. unless you can confirm that they knew better and still didn't <laughs> right. like, and, I, and I refuse to believe that yeah I know mine did the best they could so yeah they were and, and it's evolutionary right they did the best they could to get you here yep so had instinct and you had will and you had desire for more and it got you where you are. So now your daughter comes in to the picture. You and your wife now are responsible for carving out her future and getting her started. So you taking everything you learned, every wish you had, and you're going to give her the space to dream. You're going to tell her it's okay to do that. You're going to tell her it's okay to think beyond this place. You're gonna give her exposure to things that you never saw. Mm-hmm. Learn it together. But that's part of the evolution of this and it's also part of us breaking out of the system. Yeah. Think about how, let, let's go to Sula High School. All of our parents, in particularly urban settings, they went to one of them same schools. And, and one thing I can guarantee you about being in the public schools or being in the school systems in general, particularly if you are a member of the black and brown you know, community, you've got a school wound. Somebody did something to you there where you've got a wound that you carry. I did a study on successful um, 
African Americans in education. Some were deans, some were superintendents, some were teachers, some were principals, some were now professors, things like that. And the one thing, two things I found. One, they all had a spirit brother. They all can remember one person in their entire school trajectory who tried to break their spirit and crush it. Wow. They also had a significant other, someone outside of their parents who helped guide them through those times and kept them from going crazy. <laughs> you know, kept them from flipping the table over and getting now you're getting expelled. Wow. And that becomes, that's how the system goes. So going back to Sulan, I remember my first year, I'm on my way to a parent conference. Now walking down the hall in the main building um, to the guidance office. And I remember I'm walking behind what I did discover was the parents who were going to be in that parent conference. And I remember hearing the mother say, these motherfuckers ain't changed since I got kicked out of here. Is Mr. Morgan still here? I'm like, oh, wow, what am I about to walk into? But that's, that's where it was for her. She was coming back to a place where she was hurt at. You know, and man, that's deep because it's hard, to, hard for that person, although we, like I said, we all believe in education. That same parent will say education is key. There's no denying that. But also, it's a place of pain. Now, why would a person continually come to a place that tells them that they ain't shit? I know people who don't go to church because of that. Don't go to church because why would I go to a place that tells me I'm a sinner? It tells me I'm no good. It tells me I'm not worthy. Yeah. I'm trying the best I can. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Man, that's tough. I, I haven't I haven't been back to I haven't been back to I think I've been to Suitland maybe once or twice since I graduated. But yeah. it's I don't I can't say I can I don't think I, I, I'm not, I don't think, I didn't have anybody that really, I can't say they really broke my spirit, but I've seen them, I've seen them break others. Like I've seen, I've seen some of the smartest people make bad decisions. Just horrible decisions. And you just sit back and it's like, man, like you would, you just really wish that they had somebody that got them. It was like mm. it was. It was tough, man. Like that was. That was just the main. That was like the main thing. We just didn't have. We had. We had some good teachers, but unfortunately, man, I think. I think it was. I think it was more problem with the parents. Unfortunately, the parents. I didn't think. I don't think they were involved enough. Like I'm. I'm starting to see that now as an adult. Like where I'm at now, and my daughter, the PTA is real strong here, real strong. But it's funny. I went to um, we had a it had a student um, one of my one of my classmates. His name Greg Greg Cummings. And me and him went to um, me and him went to middle school together. And his father, father, um, his father was always the president of the PTA. Yeah, every year. 
And at the time, I didn't get it. But as I got older, I was like, wow, that, that black man took the time. He would come to, he would come up there every day, dirty clothes, because he was a truck driver. Come up mm-hmm. there like he just got off work, but he came to that school faithfully. So ironically, I thought about him. This is this is a couple months ago. And I actually went to Sam. I went to Sam. He he's still on his body shop. And I told him, I told him thanks for coming to that school, for giving me somebody else to see, like a black man to see who was involved in their child life and was coming to that school, because we just didn't see it. Yeah, and you gotta realize how that's significant, you know, because it can be, particularly for men, um, it can be such a place that turns you off, but you gotta love your child more than you hate school, you know, and it keeps you going there. And and the thing is, and you're seeing it change now. Uh, I'm so happy to see like, the change that take place. I know some people still complain that it's not whatever, but I'm seeing it evolve because I'm seeing young parents now who are saying, "I while I trust you to educate my child, I'm not stupid enough to say that you're going to be the only source of education my child gets. Yeah. So I'm going to be active and engaged, and I'm going to partner with you and give you a chance, teacher, administrator. But I'm also watching you too, because this is mine. And I, I love to see the parents decide, or as a community, that this is our school. You know, it, it's a big difference. It, yeah. It is, you know. So I'm I'm always happy and impressed with that because I think I see a, a new. I mean, some people are pessimistic about the present generation and the future generation stuff like that, but I choose to really see some of that uniqueness and some of that growth. Yeah, there's still problems. There always going to be still some type of problem somewhere, but you're seeing now parents who are actually doing more. You know, my. My mother came up to the school about four times. It was oftentimes to see me perform, you know, either in talent shows or in Toastmasters, stuff like that. And of course, she came when I got in trouble with Mr. McGuire's staff because he was probably one of the only teachers that would call me out when I would BS in the right. Um, my father came up there, of course, to drop stuff off for me, and he was scared because he was a tall, mean looking black man. <laughs> And I was in these all white courses, you know, where I'm like one or two or three blacks in the classroom. And back then they would let you walk up to the, the classroom door, right? So all of a sudden someone's knocking on the door and my algebra two class and it's my dad. And the teacher startled, <laughs> you know, <laughs> looking like, oh, what's about to happen? And no matter what my dad do, he looked mad. You know? <laughs> <laughs> you know? And so they were scared, like, when he signaled me to come out, they was like, like, I gonna get beat. But I came back with $20. You know, I came back with my coat, you know, <laughs> stuff like that. And he was bringing me a coat because I, I forgot my coat or something like that. Or he was gonna buy me a new coat and decided to drop it off at the school because my parents were separated, you know. So, but you're seeing a lot of that now where we're taking over, taking control of our children's 
destiny. Like we're gonna actually be there and march them through this. So, so you you mentioned you mentioned, um you just it's for you just mentioned that you your parents were separated. Yes. How did that how did that impact you? You know what? It this is the craziest thing. My parents split up anywhere between the time I was eight and the time I was ten. I didn't really recognize it at first. I just remember, oh wow, we got two apartments. Yeah, you know, and then eventually, like I grew up in Alexandria, and eventually my dad moved to New Carrollton. So I remember in Maryland. So I remember having to go out there, and I you know, that's how I learned the subway and all that kind of stuff. So I remember taking the yellow line to the orange line and you know, New Carrollton Station. I I recognize that's how I began to really grapple with the fact that they're not together. And yeah, for the most part, I knew it, it hurt because I, I worshiped my dad. And I remember seeing less and less of him. And that scarred, that scarred me. Um, when we were together, everything was good. Like whenever Dr. J came to town, he was at the Capitol Center. Oh, okay. We bonded over like boxing, music, and Dr. J. You know, those was how I bonded with him. But I'll, I'll tell you, I gave up sports because he wasn't coming to the game. Wow. I, it was, I I remember, and I've even posted about this, because I played for a little private league in Alexandria, Lee Franconia. And I remember when I would be running touchdowns, the only person that could keep up with me was my dad. He was on the sideline. So I'm running the touchdown. I'm looking over. I'm not even looking at the end zone anymore. But I'm looking at him, and he's skipping and running with me and stuff like that. And I remember playing basketball, you know, in the little county leagues. And this is back when I played against Grand Hill. He wasn't that good then. You know, <laughs> great, right? And I remember doing really good, and we was excited. Like, my, we met his father, Calvin Hill, and my dad was there and stuff like that. But when it was no longer happening, it's when I just, I didn't really want to do it anymore. You know, and stuff like that. Um, I, I wanted to go into boxing and he was cool with it. My mom found out that I was doing boxing at the gym and she cut that off. Had they been together, he could have probably talked her through it. In a lot. Um, I also think financially, of course, apartments is far more expensive than one house. Oh, definitely. <laughs> you know, and things like that. So there's things that you can kind of look back and say, wow, you know, I really regret that. And, and I hate that. Um, but my mom was still there in every scene in my life. My pops never truly left, you know, and stuff like that. So that part, you know, I'm cool with, but of course, yeah. There was a lot there. And I, when I split with my ex-wife, I was hoping we would have a peaceful breakup like my parents did. Because I never saw an argument. Okay. You know, I never saw any fights or anything like that. I mean, at least they put on a good show. And, you know, but it was, it didn't go like that. Oh. And, and that, you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I, I can, I can pretty much piece that together. It's, it, 
you know, once that separation happened, man, it's, you know, all bets is off. I just remember my, my parents, they wasn't together. I had my, um, my, my, um, my father, my father lived, he remarried, he moved, he moved out and I had my um, stepfather, he was there. And my stepfather was good. Um, he was a real good man. He just, you know, he took care of me and I didn't, but the thing is, I didn't really understand what he was doing. It took me to get older. Like, you know, he would take me to work. He took my mother to work because my, my stepfather here retired. So he did all the running around. He did all that stuff. He took care. He, like, took care of the house, like, you know, things like that. Like, just making sure we got places and all that stuff. So when I was younger, I didn't really appreciate it. But then as I got older, um, I realized that, you know, he was doing a whole lot more than what I knew. And it's just, you can't, this is my opinion. And I can't, I can't validate it because I haven't been in the position, but I don't think you could be the best father possible, not in a home. And the only reason I say that is because it's just those moments, like those moments where you just can't be there because you separated. Right. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's, it, you just can't. Like, it was times where I did wish I was living with my father, but we just, you know, we didn't we didn't have that, you know, we I could call him, but he worked so much and he was so tired. Like, we just, we just talked for a few minutes and then it was, you know, how you doing? I'm good, you good? And then we would hang up. But we never really got the establish a relationship. Like, I didn't realize that until I got older. We loved each other. But we didn't really get to establish a relationship. And and that's important, man, because I I, I totally understand it. Jack and I agree. Absolutely. I mean, to be an everyday dad, you know, I don't have to create a conversation over the awkwardness of it. Yeah. I can walk in your room and sit down with you and talk about things. I can be there to guide you through stuff, you know, as, it, as it's happening in real time. You know, when your daughter has a first heartbreak, you can be the shoulder she come cry on, you know, and you can walk her through this thing. Yeah. That when you're not there every day. Now, I'll, I'll put an ashes by that because, and you know, I guess I, I, I mention family without mentioning family, and I stand on it because it's true. There's a difference between a father and that nigga on the couch. Because I have a cousin, my aunt and uncle, where my, my uncle was there every day for his children, but he was a dude on the couch. Oh. Actively involved. He was just, he might as well just been a, like a, a, a statue there or a mannequin because he was there physically he made sure bills were paid but he wasn't really taking interest in his kids like that particularly his son his son had a rough go at him like i mean because he didn't get the things he should have got from the virtue of having your father there every single day you know and and that's that's important too so you got to be present and active, you know, and engaged. Like, that's the one thing that 
I oftentimes, like, I'm amazed at my children. They're 25 and 26 now. My son is turning 26 Sunday. My daughter is 25, September 17. And I'm amazed at them because essentially they raised themselves. Wow. Um, you know, no, no bitterness, but their mother played games with them. She played them like they were her ace of spades. No one would, no one would do anything to harm them. And because she had them, you had to mess with her. You know what I'm saying? So right. her mother held them down. You know, my mom was trying to support and help. I'm driving up to Delaware, you know, and trying to support. They had me, I had them in the summers and things like that for long periods of time. She would, every once in a while, and I, you know, I'm, I can be candid with this. Every once in a while, when she didn't feel like being a mother, I would get a beep. I go to a payphone because I'm struggling. Teachers was getting paid 26 one back then, you know, struggling. But she would then say, "I'm giving you the kids. I'll meet you at Wendy's," because I wouldn't let her know where I live because she's crazy. Uh, <laughs> and she would come with their clothes in like trash bag. Now I gotta take. She did that several times. And then when I take them and, and we and we working it out, because I remember one of the last times she did it, I was with, who was my now wife. All right, cool. We made the adjustments, got everything going. I got him in District Heights Elementary because I was living over at Oakcrest, you know, in PG County at the time. Got him in school. We then moved over to Montgomery County. I got him in school there. It's the same time as that DC sniper stuff. So I remember they remember going through all that together. Oh. And when it was working and she was no longer needed, she came with the state troopers to get them. Oh, shit. You know, so it's it's those things that I honestly feel like when I talk with my son, he shows so much focus. I talk to my daughter and she got that focus and she's living it up right now. I'm like, I'm so impressed with them. I, you know, it's a it's a privilege to hear that voice and, and look in their eyes, you know, and, and I admire them. What, by far the greatest kids I've ever known, you know, and I know some great kids, including you, but it is, they literally raised themselves. I mean, I say that to say that they didn't have what I feel will be the full benefit of me in their life. They had me, they had my support. They had me, you know, being a cheerleader on the sidelines. You know, they had me financially. But was this how I envisioned doing this? Nah. You know, and if if you have any faults, any failures in their lives, if it didn't happen on my watch, then I'm always believed I could have did something and didn't. Now, if it happened on my watch, if my kids are going to fail, it's going to have to be on my watch. That way, I know what nothing could be done. Okay. <laughs> you know, but if it happened and it ain't on my watch, then in the back of my mind, you should have been there. You could have did this. You could have did that. If you'd have known, this would have happened and that would have happened. I would have made things move and all that kind of stuff because I'm always going to see myself as responsible for what they do and what happens to them. You know, 
And, and that's just how it's always going to be. But that's the benefit of being there every day. Yeah. Watch. Yeah. It's, it's, it, I tell you, like, it's weird because I'm an everyday father. Mm-hmm. But I have so much respect for fathers who do it part-time. And the reason I feel that way, because it's like, man, I can't imagine you know, having to make it work. Like I've been, I've been really blessed. Like it's always been a team. So I've never really been in a situation where, okay, I got to do Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and you do these days. So, well, I can't say I've never been, because I have, we did separate at one point, but for the most part, it's been a team and we got back together. So, I can't really put myself in those those gentlemen boat because they've been doing it for a long time. And it's like, man, like you just, you gotta drop. Like a lot of times the kids don't even live in the same area. So mm-hmm. you, gotta, you gotta make provisions to get off work early or whatever you gotta do, or you just gotta stay late so you can't make it. It's like, man, I tip my hat to those dudes, man. Yeah. And that's, and that's real, man, because it's tough. And like I said, the sense of responsibility, because I don't know too many, I don't know any guys I know that are parents who are out here just being bullshit and, and happy with it. You know, you may be a deadbeat, but you also, you're tortured. Yeah. You know, I don't know nobody just happy. <laughs> you know? Yeah. You're tortured in that sense. It's gonna haunt you. It's you know your seed is out there protected. Yeah. You no. Know, and, and like as every father I knew, that was a, that was a sore spot for them if it was like that. And if it's not like that, it is the most proud thing they they do. Yeah. They define themselves. You know, and that's so cool. You know. Cause I respect, I respect my father. Cause one thing he, you know, he made a way. Like and myself, father. I've been, I was really blessed. I had two men who loved me. They didn't tell me they loved me, but they showed me. You know, they showed me things. Like I, there are some things I wish they would have showed me. Like I, I think now with our generation of fathers are coming along. And I'm not going to say we're better fathers than our fathers. It's just we have, we're better equipped. Like, we, 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 we're we learning to deal with our emotions better. There's not, you know, it's okay to be a dad. Like, you know, there's things that your father wouldn't do when you would come. Like, they didn't, they didn't realize how important it was just to be there. Their whole thing was, you know, just pay the bills and make sure a roof over your head. And it's like, it's not, that's not enough no more. Like, you got to have a... You gotta have a real relationship with your kids now. Like they're not going for that shit now. Like <laughs> you can say, "Oh yeah, daddy had to work to make teeth." That yeah, well, no, well, that one want to hear it. Right. One time is cool, but it, when it's a pattern, mm-mm, they don't want to hear it. And I think it's important, you know. Also, even media is playing a better role of showing dads and showing even black dads stuff like that. And I don't even know if they intended it to be that way. But let's even take some of the reality TV shows. I mean, even T.I., you know, 
actually is a little reality show. I don't watch it, but I caught a couple episodes so I kind of know what's going on. But you're starting to see these dudes be responsible men. Yeah. You know, they may have done crazy things, you know, when they didn't know better, but to seeing them be responsible and, and present, you know, and that stuff is cool because now we're learning from people who are out there and successful and still having that time. So it's, you're almost like shunned if you just don't give a damn about your kids. Which is great. <laughs> you know, like your friends is checking you now. You know, society's checking you now. You know, and stuff like that. So it's, it's, it's a better environment. You can't hide from it no more. And we're starting to really appreciate the importance of, of men, of fathers, of actually significant other men in people's lives, whether it's a coach or, you know, community person or stepfather or big brother or something like that. Or even a neighborhood OG who just ain't going to let certain things happen because little shorties are around. Yeah. I'm going to say this, though. I'm going to tell you what helps me out a lot. My wife, just being the fact that, you know, she's a career woman herself. So that I don't have that financial burden of having to do everything. Like, Mm. we're a good team. So when you're a team, you know, there's things that I'm strong at. Like, I'm more a fun parent. Like, I enjoy taking her little things that's, you know, fun, you know, dances and things like that. Where my wife, you know, she's more the education piece. She makes all, all the admin stuff done. So she's doing all that, that, that work that nobody sees. And I'm doing all the, you know, the, uh, the stuff that people get to see that's fun. That's easy to do. Right. That's the easy stuff to do. The hard stuff is, you know, making sure that paperwork right and, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the grades good and, you know, that, that's the hard part. So I've been really blessed to have a, a wife who, you know, is a partner and, and willing to work as a team because it's important, man. <laughs> and I tell you, man, that's, that is key to a lot. One of the things that we don't realize that we teach our kids is relationship skills. Yeah. Teaching your kids relationship skills because they watch it, everything y'all do as a unit. So they don't see y'all dancing in the kitchen together. They don't see y'all hug. They don't see y'all hold hands. They don't see you kiss each other goodbye, things like that. They don't see how y'all then harmonize to get things done. But they learn in that. Yeah. One of the craziest things I remember seeing, uh, one summer I worked at Lower Baltimore, um, in some program, Lower Baltimore Elementary School. Um, and... It was around the time that the song Shantae's Got a Man. And I remember this little, I think she had to be about nine or ten in the summer program. And she was talking about how she hated the song because it wasn't real. One, I'm not thinking that someone that young is processing the lyrics of the song and speaking socially. So she heard that from people. Right. You know, if Shantae's got a man at home, that ain't real, I hate that song. (laughs) <laughs> you know, we don't she's not learning relationship skills that way and yeah. in the home where you gonna learn about music videos 
<laughs> I challenge you to learn it that way. You know, you learn it while watching in the streets. Or you learn bad relationship skills by watching violence in the home. Two angry adults who can't get along and stuff like that. Remember, I told you, I never saw my parents argue. Uh, I knew my dad was a jokester. And sometimes my mom would get irritated by it. And I do remember it was one argument they had, but it was as adults. It was as as I was an adult, they got into an argument because he kept joke is something that happened in like 1981. Like, and my mom, it triggered something my mom that she didn't get over. And here's what happened. Something happened where during Thanksgiving, and I think he either cracked a joke about something or whatever, and she took me to a friend's house and they had Thanksgiving there and left him. Mm. And he he brought it back up and made a joke about it again. And my mom got upset. You know, but that's the only time I ever kind of recall them even feeling like that. And this occurred when I'm in my like 30s. Wow. You know, nope, I never watched that. So I got used to like relationships can be harmonious. You know, okay. that's what you're giving your daughter. She's going to learn through your your wife how women behave and how women ought to be loved. She's yeah. going to learn through you how to choose a man who knows how to treat a woman. She's going to learn how to be treated by watching what you do to her mom. Yeah, and I'm 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 accepting of that, and I'm and I'm learning that. Like I always knew it, but now she's getting older. Cause she's seven now, so yeah. she, you know, she's processing and, and even things now. Like I'll give my wife a kiss, and she's like, "I want a kiss." No. So I'm starting to, <laughs> starting to see like you know, he, she, she's really, like, she's at that age now where she's starting to get influence. Yeah, it's important. It's really important that I, you know, do what I'm supposed to do as a, as a husband, as a father, everything. And that's, that's that's dope, man. Like my daughter's still daddy's girl. You know, we we have enough experiences. We have enough contact. Um, even as she's twenty five, you know, I was still the person who moved her into college. I'm still yeah, that. Yeah. there for a lot of everything, you know. And we had those conversations. We had that contact and stuff like that. Same with my son. So. And it's despite the fact that me and the mother couldn't get our act together, you know, for a, for a promotion of them. Individually, the relationships were still strong and they saw something, you know. And, and that's cool. I, I wonder what it would have been, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Had it been... Like, even if I had the exact same kids by the wife I have now, but I wouldn't, you know, but I wouldn't want to change them in one that with the exact same ones. Yeah. Get a chance to redo this, you know, and that to me, you know, what they see in, because they had a chance, like when I, I met my current wife, they were seven and eight. They lived with us when we moved to, um, moved to Silver Spring, stuff like that. Um, so they had a chance to see us interact. They cook with us. We had game nights where we would do things and stuff like that. 
still today, our favorite family game is Monopoly. You know, <laughs> but we did a speed version of it, so we made it cool. You know, so it ain't like a 20-hour game. But those are just small things we did together and, and stuff like that. They kind of, they had a chance to see that, you know. And, and then I see them, particularly my son and his relationship, he takes care of his girl. Yeah. And as far as emotionally, he's there, he's present with her. Um, but also he respects what she has to say and what she do. Yeah, that's important. That's real important. You know, so I'm like I said, when I admire him, like I know you ain't get that watching me and your mother. <laughs> <laughs> but, also, but I'll say this too. He, he, he's never seen me bash her. Okay. And and I made sure of that because one, it ain't kids' business. Two, I still his mom. Mm-hmm. You know, the same way, I, because my mother never bashed my father in my face. Right. My father never did the same to her or to me with her. He'll tell you even to the day he messed up. He lost them. You know, he'll say, "I lost the whole family." You know, wondering what could have been. You know, stuff like that. He he knows that. You know, and he's married and, and stuff like that and, and moved on, but he still recognizes, you know, because even when they talk, they still get along. They still get along the day. In college, they would call me and put me on three-way and, and start talking. And they continue talking tonight. They didn't ask me nothing. <laughs> you know, but what it taught me in the back of my mind is you can divorce and still be cool. Yeah. Get along. You can you can love your kid more than you hate each other, you know. So, but I still think just having that visual every day, being able to watch y'all interact, she's picking up things you don't even realize. Yeah, and I'm I'm praying that you know all of them. I I just pray that you know my my two most important jobs is is to be a good husband and to be a good father, like. I don't really, I don't really concern myself with too much other things, because yeah. um, those are the people that you know, those are the people that depend on me the most and love me the most. Mm-hmm. Like, I, you know, there was a point where you know, my mom, I grew up in that house, but I got my own house now, and I'm right home. So, like, these are the two people that depend on me the most, and I understand that, and it's you know. It's, it's pressure, like, um, it's pressure. I, I, I can't sit here and lie, it's pressure because I know that if I don't do things correctly, you know, it could, it could influence Nia in a way that I would never want her to be influenced. Like, I want her to, to know that there's a, there can be beautiful relationships, like me and her mother, me and my wife, we have a beautiful relationship. Let's not say we don't have issues. I mean, come on. Yeah. You're going to marry, you're going to have some issues. But the fact that we've been able to work together and we loved each other and we took care of each other and we took care of her, mm. it's, you know, it's, it's helped us tremendously. So I'm just making sure that, you know, when she gets out here, she got to choose a man. I just gotta make sure that boss that house. <laughs> yep. Mm-hmm. I don't want her to bring no shit home. <laughs> and, and what you're gonna be teaching her too is how to check, man. 
Yeah. Disrespectful without being confrontational because I think that's that's actually a sign that you have not been around men because if you have been around men, you know that when we start being quiet, you better get worried. <laughs> when we start saying, all right then, you better get worried. So, but knowing how to check a man when out, what I mean is she's going to hold him to her standards. Well, what we talk about. Yeah. No, I'm not going to compromise to be with somebody. And you train a person on how to, how to approach you. You train a person on how to treat you. So if they're not treating you well, you got to, first thing you got to say is, well, what about me made you think that this was cool? What did I do to make you think the stepping to me is this way? Because you know, as a man, there's certain ways we step to certain people. Yeah. <laughs> you know? You're right. So you've got to train her on the fact that she'll be able to check and quick, like, hold up. What did what did I do to make you think that approaching me like this was cool? <laughs> yeah, you ain't lying about that. You know, and, and, and just pause and break off. You ain't gotta get disrespectful. But you gotta you gotta control that narrative. You gotta control how this story gonna go. Because right. you're going to teach her that, and her mom will teach her that. And she's also going to start, you're going to be the criterion by which you judge. Yeah. I'm, <laughs> you know? I'm seeing that. So I'm seeing that. It's, it's been a blessing, man. It's, you know, it's, it's, been a, it's been a blessing. It's been a learning experience. Mm-hmm. But uh, I've enjoyed it. I've truly enjoyed it. We're going to have to get ready to wrap this thing up. We end up going all night. Indeed. <laughs> I just want to just uh, thank you again for taking this time. Um, I know you're extremely busy, but it's been an honor, man, a pleasure, because you're one of the few people who I really looked up to and influenced me. So I can't thank you enough for taking this time to do this for me. Oh, brother, thank you so much for having me. This is kind of a full circle moment, like, wow, you know, <laughs> So I'm proud of you. You know, I, I, I can say I saw this, you know, coming that, you know, you were going to do great things and you were going to have this because this is just where you were going in life, man. So everything that you've done, you deserve and you've earned and you got it, man. Yeah, I appreciate it. Man. More to you know? I truly appreciate it. I'm going to just do my best to make you proud, man. Oh, brother, I'm already proud, but you know, and like I said, I'm going to do my best to impress you, <laughs> you know, again. <laughs> yeah, you definitely have. I'm, 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 I'm following me. I'm, re- I'm definitely impressed. I tell all my, I tell my parents, my friends that, you know, I show them your Facebook. I'm like, this guy's a doctor. He used to be my teacher. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. it's definitely an honor, man. All right. Well, you take care. And again, right. thank you all for listening. You all have a good one.